This is uh, week four in our series entitled Thy Kingdom Come, Getting to the Heart of the Revolutionary Message of Jesus. And those words, as many of us know, are taken from Matthew chapter 6 verse 10, the, uh, the prayer that Jesus encourages his disciples to pray, uh, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, and the words are, Thy Kingdom Come, Thy Will Be Done, on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is central to the New Testament. And we won't truly understand the message of God, the gospel, the message of Jesus, unless we can understand what he said about the kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, kingdom is mentioned um, 55 times. In Mark's gospel, 20 times. In Luke's gospel, 45 times. In John's gospel, 5 times. Although we've discovered recently that John uses another term in place of the kingdom, and that is eternal life, or abundant life, or even life. We've also learned in the last couple of weeks that the kingdom of heaven does not mean heaven, or the place that you go to when you die. That God's kingdom is God's reign and God's rule. And that kingdom was inaugurated by Jesus coming into this world. And one day it will be consummated by Jesus coming again. And the kingdom, therefore, is our present possession, but it's also a future hope. In heaven, God's will is always done, and God's reign is absolutely complete. But as we all know, that isn't so on earth, that his reign is partial, and his reign is um, not always done, His, his will is not always done. But one day... We believe that when Christ returns, when he will usher in his eternal kingdom, that will come in all of its fullness. There will be peace and prosperity. There will be justice and harmony, reconciliation, restoration. And God will balance the scales. And at that time, God's rule will be complete. And there will be new heavens and a new earth. And the the prophet Isaiah paints this in wonderful picture language for us when he says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and they will be together. Last week I confessed that um, I often find the words of Jesus hard to understand. And I think the older I've got, the harder i found the words to actually understand. And it would appear that Jesus on times, he seems to delight in leaving us confused. But why is that? Why is Jesus on occasion so apparently vague? Why is he so hard to pin down? Why does he always nearly answer a question with another question? And the parables, my word, when we come to the parables, they seem very elusive to us. Well, we concluded last week that um, it was because Jesus' message through the parables was not aimed merely at conveying information. But these wonderful stories sought to do something far more than just convey information to us. They are there for our spiritual transformation, something which is more important to gain. And the parables are not, as most people would think, some kind of illustrations to bring light in on a given subject. But rather, the parables are there to tease us, to tantalize us, to entice us, to provoke us to getting closer to God and to draw us closer to him. Last week we also looked at a a couple of personal uh, conversations that Jesus had with 
individuals and they were just left scratching their heads afterwards. Firstly, it was Nicodemus, the religious leader, um, who was told that he needed to be born again. And then there was the woman in John chapter 4 that Jesus met at the well. And um, um, she was told by Jesus that if she knew who he was, then she would ask him for living water. And as we said last week, both of those people, Nicodemus and the woman, were certainly confused.com. They really were. And uh, today we're going to listen in on another conversation. A conversation that Jesus had. And we are privileged through the scriptures to be fly on the wall um, observers, listeners, into this particular conversation. And this conversation was with a rich young official. It's an absolutely fascinating dialogue because at face value and upon reading this, perhaps superficially, we are asking more questions at the end of it than we are at the beginning of it. And I think that as we look a little bit deeper into this today, we will find some incredibly important lessons and what it means to enter the kingdom of God. So that's a, a little backtrack for the last couple of weeks. As I say, it's week four this week in the series. So we're going to read now from Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do, com, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for the privilege which is ours just to eavesdrop, to be a fly on a wall, listening into this conversation that the Lord Jesus had with this young man. And I pray, Lord, today that we might not leave this place confused at this conversation because it's very difficult for us two millennia later in a totally different culture to understand the full import of these words. But I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you will guide us as we study this passage together today. 
for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start our talk this morning with a modern parable about entering the kingdom of God. And it's taken from this book, which I've quoted to you on a couple of occasions recently. It's a book by Brian McLaren. It's entitled The Secret Message of Jesus. It's quite a wonderful book. It's a little parable about entering the kingdom. So sit back and, and listen. Enjoy. A friend returns from vacation and tells you about this new land she has seen. And it sounds absolutely wonderful. You've always been more or less satisfied with your fatherland. It's the only reality that you've ever imagined. But her stories make you notice things that you've never noticed before. Compared to the new land your friend has described, your fatherland suffers from stifling air pollution. The scenery is blah. The culture is boring, crude and uncreative and the economy is stagnant. The more you replay the scenes and stories described by a friend, stories of exciting people, vibrant culture, beautiful scenery and a robust economy, the more you feel restless. One evening, your dinner is interrupted by six successive calls from telemarketeers selling gas masks so that you can breathe more easily on high pollution days. And something in you snaps. That's it. I've had it. I'm leaving, you think. I'm going to start a new life in this new land with my that my friend has told me about. So you gradually begin to imagine life in the new kingdom. Gradually you can see yourself there. The life is better. Still you vacillate for a while. Do you have enough faith to pack your suitcase and head to the border? Do you really trust your friend enough to make a move like this? You share with her your dreams and your doubts. And she says, if you go, I'll go with you. Ever since I visited, I can't stop thinking about going back for good. And that tips the balance. You sell your house and your possessions and the two of you set off. With some apprehension, you approach the border. You present your papers and declare yourself as a, a, an immigrant. They ask you one simple question. Do you wish to leave your past behind and start a new life in our kingdom? When you say yes, they issue you a passport. No questions asked. And then they recommend that you take a bath. They explain that immigrants usually find it wise to wash off the soot and the smell of their own country, old country so they can have a clean start in this new homeland. You comply and you're glad you did. You step outside and take a deep breath and your lungs feel as if you're inhaling pure health, joy and peace. It's as if the spirit of the new kingdom is entering you. You feel alive as never before. You find a new home, meet new neighbours and settle into a whole new life. You quickly realise that you have a lot to learn. The people speak a new dialect here. It's not the old familiar accent of pride, judgement, bragging, misleading, insulting or lying. Rather, it's the accent of gratitude, encouragement, truth-telling, admitting faults and celebrating joys. You also notice that these people here live in a different pace that you used to. They're not lazy, but they're not workaholics either. 
They live with a certain rhythm, weaving rest and work and worship and play and fellowship and sacrifice and feasting and fasting as you settle into your new life. You almost feel as you have been born into a new autobiography and a new world. So what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? When I became a Christian 39 years ago, I remember that there was some disagreeable name-calling going on from certainly my football teammates uh, who had a, a lot of fun at my expense. Steve's got religion, said one. He's become one of those Bible bashers, said another as he sipped his pint. He's joined the God Squad, said our centre forward. I smiled at their ridicule. Acted cool. It's not affecting me, this. Taking it all in my stride, but on the inside, I just wanted to be beamed somewhere else in the world at that moment. And I'm just thinking about that phrase the other day, and um, the phrase of joining the God Squad. And it dawned on me, what a wonderful way to explain what the Kingdom of God is and how to enter it. I know, I know it's not a perfect analogy, and it doesn't cover all the bases of what the kingdom of God is about. But you see, to enter the kingdom of God means joining, not an organisation, not, not a club, not a society, not even a church, but joining the people of God, those who acknowledge his kingship in their lives, and those who choose to live their lives according to the desires and the values of their squadron leader. Surprisingly, in this kingdom there are no rules. Not, not that is in the, the narrow sense, where you have petty rules and regulations that some other societies and religions have. Although there are principles, and the principles of loving the king whose kingdom it is, and loving everyone in fact, are paramount. There are no fees or subscriptions in this kingdom, although it seems that most subjects of this kingdom live according to new guidelines and protocols and practices. There's a new generosity of spirit in this kingdom, or member of the, to become a member of the squad, if you prefer. It means seeking to honour the king, to desire to extend his influence, his love his justice his, his mercy his grace his presence his fragrance among individuals families societies associations organisations, communities businesses, governments and other people groups as Brian McLaren said in his great parable there it's like emigrating to another land. But the story that we read together a few moments ago from the scriptures in Luke chapter 18 speaks of a young guy who wanted in on this kingdom and yet he found the price of entry far too costly. And on the first reading of that story there are many questions which are left unanswered. Why did Jesus say to the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Was Jesus there somehow trying to say to the man that he wasn't God? 
when the man asked Jesus about inheriting eternal life. Why did Jesus refer him to the commandments? That was probably the last thing I would have imagined Jesus doing. Why did Jesus tell him that he needed to sell everything to follow him? Because if that really is the qualification of becoming a Christian, wow, how many of us have done that? And when Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Does that mean that all of us who are in the richest 10% of people on planet earth, every single one of us in this room, does that mean that we are unable to enter the kingdom of God? So what we're going to do for a little while this morning is we're going to walk through this story. We're going to try to understand what this story tells us about entering into the kingdom of God. So let's uh, start by looking at Luke 18, verse 18. And the young man said to Jesus, he asked him that question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Life. And for those of you that know your Bibles quite well, you will know that Jesus was asked that question on another occasion. The other occasion was a few chapters before in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And on this occasion it was... um, Uh, A lawyer, an expert in the law that asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is often the question that many people will ask today. And often the emphasis of that question is on the words, what must I do? Now, if this story, and many of us know this story quite well, if this story was being read to us for the very first time, What would we imagine that Jesus would say? How would we imagine Jesus would answer that very question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? If I didn't know what was coming next, I would have taken a guess at, believe on me, that's all you need for eternal life. Much in the way that the Apostle Paul answered the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. The jailer came up to uh, to Paul and said, what must we do to be saved? And Paul answered, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. But I think that we've all learned by now that you can't put Jesus in a box. And Jesus always surprises us. And he directs this man, surprisingly so, to the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not testify falsely, honour your father and mother. And what Jesus did there, he, he quoted the commandments 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9. And that's almost exactly what happened a few chapters earlier in the other story. The story when this lawyer came up to Jesus and asked the same question. And he referred him to the law. And in chapter 10 verse 27... He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Now that answer is quite similar to the other one because what Jesus did there by saying love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself really summarised all the Ten Commandments because the first four commandments are all about loving the Lord your God and the last six are all about loving your neighbour as yourself. And then Jesus quite amazingly says to this man in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
And I read that and I thought, hello? What's going on here? That is not what I expected Jesus to say. And I read that and it troubled me. And I can well imagine it troubles you as well. That all this man, or it appeared that Jesus was saying, all this man needed to do was to keep the commandments and receive eternal life. And if this man had not asked the supplementary question, who is my neighbour, and then Jesus gave him the story of the Good Samaritan, that is the answer that that man would have walked away with. That Jesus was referring him to the commandments to keep them. And that is not your typical evangelical Pentecostal church answer to that question. Let's come back to the story in Luke chapter 18, this rich young ruler. He says to Jesus that he had actually kept these commandments. I've kept them all since I was a boy, he said. And Jesus there didn't argue with him. He didn't say, oh no, you haven't. You might think that you have. No one can keep the commandments perfectly. He didn't say any of that stuff. Jesus didn't challenge his comment. But Jesus simply said to him, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Ouch. I didn't see that one coming. You see, we're told that this man became sad because he had great wealth. Well, let's just stop for a moment. Put yourself in this guy's shoes. He's not a rogue, this guy. He's a good guy. He has kept the commandments. He lives an upright life. He obeys the rules. But Jesus says to him, there's one more thing that I require from you. I want you to give it all away. Now, I'd love to stop you for a moment, or for five minutes, or ten minutes. We haven't got the time to do that. And just to get you speaking to whoever's next to you, and just talk about this as to, you know, so what you make of this whole dilemma here. What's going on? This certainly isn't comfortable. This, in reading it, it doesn't make me feel contented, you know, that warm glow on the inside or feel relaxed or secure or snug actually these words are quite confrontational I much prefer reading other things that Jesus said like the words in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 when Jesus said come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest I much prefer that, don't you? you know I just wish it was all about that kind of stuff that makes me feel very happy and contented and snug inside you know, those words are comfortable and cosy, the equivalent of a cup of Horlicks before bed. But these words, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, that's not comfortable. That's not snug. And then Jesus continues by saying it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's actually easier, he said, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If that's true, then we're all doomed. So, let's see if we can bring a little bit of light this morning on this troublesome passage and ask then the all-important question of what this means for us today as we enter into the kingdom of God and as we remain as citizens in that kingdom. You see, we have the indispensable help of the Holy Spirit, the one who promises to guide us into all truth. And I thank God for his spirit 
who gives us illumination in the scriptures. But we also need to be very, very aware that when we are reading the scriptures, that we are separated from the Bible text by 2,000 years and 2,000 miles. This context of a story is, is from a different land, is from a different culture, is from a different time. And we need to be sensitive of that whenever we read our Bibles. We really do. Because I think probably the biggest fault for contemporary Christians is that we tend to go to the Scriptures asking our 21st century questions rather than asking the 1st century questions and the questions that these Scriptures were addressing. And I think that's really, really important. And I think that in reading the story of the rich young ruler, or for that matter, the expert in the law in Luke 10, the, the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life has actually been misunderstood by Christians today. That we understand those words in a way which is alien to the way that they were understood in the first century. You see, the first thing to note is that when the man asked that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was not asking Jesus about life in heaven after you die. The eternal life that he was speaking about there are two words taken from the Greek. The New Testament, as you know, is in Greek. And the words were aeonios zoe. Zoe is life. Uh, you know, many girls are called zoe. What a, a lovely name to give someone. It means life. But the other word, aeonios, is which we get our English word eon from, or age. And this phrase, aeonios zoe, actually means the life of the ages, which might not immediately mean anything to you at all. So let me give you a, some background as to what this meant for the Jews in the first century. The Jews, or most of them at least, looked forward to the coming age. Uh, they believed that there were only two ages, the age that they were living in and the age that was yet to come. This coming age that they looked forward to was the age of God's kingdom, when everything would be fresh and new, and everything would be free from corruption and decay, and there would be no bitterness, and there would be no fear and no death. Heaven and earth would be joined together, and God and his children would live together. And no longer would they, as the Jewish people, live in servitude and enslavement to other nations. Not forgetting that even at the time that Jesus spoke these words, they were living under foreign occupation of the Romans, and they had done so with other world powers for the last 600 years. But that God was coming back to rule his world with justice and mercy. And through Jesus' ministry, because Jesus focuses a lot on the kingdom of, of God, and that the kingdom had come, had come among them. And that had happened when people uh, received their dead back to life again. And when the sick were healed, and when demons were cast out, a little bit of this future age that the Jews were looking forward to was breaking in to their present age. Like we saw that video a moment ago of the Watato uh, choir. That was a little promo, a little taster of what is to come. Well, all of those things that were happening in the ministry of Jesus were a little taster of that which was to come in the future. God's kingdom was touching earth. And therefore, this man's question of what must I do to inherit eternal life isn't 
about going to heaven when you die. In fact, what he was doing was asking, how can the benefits of this future age, this wonderful age, the Messiah's age, the age of prosperity and peace, when the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, how can that be my experience now? How can I partake of that kind of kingdom life right now? And in response to that question, Jesus points him to the the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal. You shall not give false testimony on your father and mother. And all of these things, he said, I've, I've done all of these since I was a boy. Jesus didn't quarrel with him. But he said to him, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. And in effect, what Jesus was saying to him there was that your treasure is on earth and it's getting in the way. And if you truly want to experience the life of my kingdom, the life of this eternal kingdom, then you need to let go of your old values because the values of my kingdom are the very opposite of the values of this world in which you live. And when you think back to last week and our discussion of Nicodemus, because Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he said there to Nicodemus was that you need to rethink everything. You need to unlearn stuff and you need to relearn stuff and you need to go back and become almost as a little child and start all over again and understand things totally differently. And to this rich guy in the story, Jesus is saying essentially the same. You need to rethink You need to unlearn. You need to relearn what is really important in my kingdom. And it's not money. You see, a key verse to understand what's going on here is found in Matthew chapter 5. Often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. Let me just put that verse up for you. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus is speaking and Jesus says, For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Again, same, same subject, talking about entry into the kingdom. Now that's an amazing statement. Again, put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. These religious people, these Pharisees, were paragons of virtue. According to these Jews, no one lived like them. They were the holiest people on earth. And yet Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness, you're not even going to see it, this kingdom. So how shocking was that? And then in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll have a look at this next week as well. Jesus provides six uh, examples of the Pharisees' righteousness and kingdom righteousness. And he compares the two, and that's what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus introduces the two sections by saying that you have heard this as being said, or by them of old. That essentially was the view of the Pharisees. And then he says, but I say to you. And you look in your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 5, you will see that repeated on a number of occasions. And Jesus says such things as, you've heard that it's uh, said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So therefore, you can see, these are the standards of the Pharisees. 
but these are the standards of my kingdom. And Jesus went on on other issues as well. The uh, Pharisees' righteousness said, do not commit murder. But Jesus, the kingdom righteousness, do not even get angry. Pharisees' righteousness says, love your friends. But the kingdom and Jesus' righteousness says, love your enemies also. The Pharisees' righteousness believes in an eye for an eye. But the kingdom righteousness and the kingdom standards and the kingdom's values is all about turning the other cheek. And you see what's happening here is that these religious leaders, they kept the law absolutely perfectly. That is on the outside they did, externally. They didn't commit adultery. They didn't murder. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They didn't steal. But what Jesus is saying, that the values of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, far exceed the standards of simply not doing something. Jesus showed here that the, the values of the kingdom are far more challenging externally than just keeping the Ten Commandments. You see, Jesus showed the expert in the law what it was really like to live a kingdom life. Uh, Jesus told him about the story of the, the Good Samaritan uh, who had been beaten, dying on the side of the road. And even though Jews and Samaritans were enemies, this Samaritan went out of his way to help that person, even though the priest and the Levite passed by the other side. And the message to that man, to that expert in the law was, go and do likewise. In other words, what Jesus was saying to the original question that man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was saying, this is what my kingdom is like, just like that Samaritan. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law kept the commandments. And Jesus is saying to them, big deal, big deal, that's nothing. The standards are far more than that. Do you think that you can become a part of my squad just because you haven't murdered anyone? Just because you haven't committed adultery? Just because you haven't robbed a bank? And Jesus says here to the young official, you are living for money and wealth. That is your God. You are devoted to that. You are devoted to your possessions. And yet at the same time you talk about wanting to experience new life of the kingdom. What Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways here. You can't hold on to those old values and have the benefits of my new world. That's essentially the message of, of Jesus here. And by the way, giving away all our possessions isn't the standard for everyone. In Luke chapter 8 verse 3 we read of wealthy women who supported Jesus and the disciples on their travels because they had some wealth. They didn't give it all away, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to support Jesus on these travels. In Luke chapter 19 we are told of Zacchaeus who gave half his wealth, wealth to the poor and if he had cheated anyone of their taxes he promised to pay them four times as much. Wonderfully generous, yes, but it wasn't everything. And yet, Jesus still said, salvation has come to this house today. Having said that, I still believe that salvation affects our pockets. It really does. And um, uh, like Dan, who thanked you earlier, I, I thank you for the way that you have invested in the kingdom of God 
so that we can serve as a church community here in this community. And very often that's what happens when someone enters into the kingdom of God. The person who has been tight-fisted normally becomes open-handed. <clears throat> but what Jesus is speaking here to this man of giving everything away is specifically for him. And then Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. <coughs> and what's this all about? Well, some people have suggested that uh, a long time ago in the first century, that in one of the walls of Jerusalem there was this opening that was so small that uh, a guy on his camel couldn't get through. He would have to duck and it was, it was too awkward to get through. And that's quite a fascinating idea and I've heard that many times by many preachers. <coughs> it's an ingenious explanation. The problem is there's no archaeological evidence uh, for that. And, um, you know, to cut to the chase, you know, basically somebody made up that idea. And it's gone with people and preachers for a long, long time, but that's not the, what's going on here. Another idea, and I, I'm actually quite in favour of this idea, it is a lot uh, in its favour, and that is that camel, camelos, does it look like someone you know? No, don't go there. Camelos, and maybe it should have been rope, is the word that was used. And as you can see there, camelos and camelos, uh, there's only one letter different in those two words. And some people have believed that over a period of time in the copying of the transcripts, that was actually changed. And yeah, I, I think that that's quite possible and that's, that's okay. Nothing to worry about there. But you know what? It doesn't affect what Jesus is talking about one little bit. Because Jesus is using hyperbole. He is using exaggeration. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a camel or if you're talking about a rope. It's not going to get through an eye of a needle, is it? <coughs> and those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, the life that God calls us to, this kingdom life, this life of the ages, this life of eternity, for us it's humanly impossible. We could never live up to it. We couldn't keep it up. It would break us if we tried. But the good news is that we're not asked or required to live this kingdom life in our own strength. But we have God's Spirit who is living in us. And then Peter, we're told, it had to be Peter, of course it did. He heard what Jesus had said to the rich young ruler. And he spoke up and he said, we have left all we had to follow you. And then Jesus responded to Peter, reminding him that no one has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this life and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is that you never lose out. And the king of his kingdom, Jesus, calls us to live wholeheartedly for him, for his purposes in this world. And in one sense, we might lose out in doing that. But we will always be compensated by him in this life and in the life to come. My daughter was convinced for many years that if I had not been a pastor, I would have been a millionaire businessman. 
Uh, and she was utterly convinced that that would have happened. Both my brothers are millionaire businessmen, and she imagines that I have probably gone into business with them. Well, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But in a sense, who cares? Who cares? I got the best deal anyway. I really did. And I have absolutely no regrets. Time has left us. Let me just pull this together. What are the lessons today from this parable? Firstly, when we read the scriptures, let Jesus speak. Let us hear what he is saying with all of its raw power. Without us trying to fit Jesus into our comfortable ways of thinking. Secondly, when we come to the scriptures, let us try to ask their first century questions and not our 21st century ones. Thirdly, eternal life is far more than just heaven when you die. In fact, as I said the last couple of weeks, Jesus spoke very little about anything beyond this world. And a huge amount about how we live our lives in his kingdom, here and now. Fourthly, before you're tempted to pat yourself on the back for managing to keep those Ten Commandments outwardly, please remember that the standards of God's kingdom are far superior, far in excess to just outwardly keeping the rules. There was one young guy who came to see me a few weeks ago and he was really angry with me. He was really, really angry with me. And um, he was saying that I was wrong for not teaching this congregation about tithing, by giving 10% to the church. And he scolded me, actually, saying, you know, that uh, you're dishonouring to God in what you're doing and so forth. And he said, the first 10% belonged to God. And I told him, that was the standard of the Old Testament. You were actually shortchanging him. Because the standard of the new is that the whole lot belongs to God, not just the 10%. Fifthly, Jesus invites us all to become part of his kingdom, his squad. And that doesn't mean just getting religious. It doesn't mean just becoming a church attender. It doesn't even mean just saying our prayers. It means something far more radical and revolutionary than that. Because his kingdom is the, to live in opposite ways to the ways that you have lived in your life so far. It requires us to rethink, to unlearn, to relearn, to become as children and start all over again. And whoever we are, whichever age or whichever country we live in, that is the challenge of the kingdom of heaven. So through the rich young ruler, the challenge was that he loved wealth more than he loved God. And he needed to deal with that. And he needed to sort out the priorities in his life. If you, for the expert in the law, the challenge was that he needed to demonstrate love to his enemy. To act as a good neighbour to his enemies as well as his friends. To the woman in the well, the challenge was, and forgive, forgive me for putting it like this, she needed to keep her knickers on. She needed to stop having all those adulterous relationships. For religious Nicodemus, the challenge of entering the kingdom was that he needed to rethink and unlearn and relearn everything. 
And that leaves us with the question this morning, what does, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? Does it mean coming to church on a Sunday? Well, if that's your standard, you're missing what Jesus is teaching by a country mile. You see, for some it will mean overcoming the hold that money has on us. For, other, for others it will mean loving that neighbour or work colleague. For others it might mean rethinking those old views or something else. But for all of us, it means replacing the ways of the world, the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world around us, to replace that with God's wisdom. Amen. Let's pray together. Guys, if you'd like to come back, would you stand please as we pray?